the Ortho PAC hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Welcome today Michael Pope. Michael is the Vice President of Reimbursement and Professional Advocacy for the American Academy of PAs. And let me tell you, he has a wealth of information on PA practice and reimbursement. He gave a talk at a recent Indianapolis meeting, and I'm excited to have him back on the podcast. Michael, welcome. Thank you, Sam. It's my pleasure to be here, and it's been great working with you for so many years. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about CPT modifiers, surgical assistant billing, and you had mentioned some special situations about billing Medicare at teaching hospitals. I hope you might go through that. Right. So Medicare requires certain modifier codes to be used when PAs or NPs provide care. There are also modifiers, of course, for physicians like the 24 and the 25 and 57. Those are for all healthcare professionals. But there are a couple of modifiers that are somewhat unique to the PA profession. And one is the AS modifier when a PA first assisted surgery. That's required on the claim form. For a physician, there is a different modifier to be used. And quite frankly, for commercial payers, oftentimes they go back and forth between different modifiers such as 80, 81, and 82. But for Medicare purposes, there must be an AS modifier appended to the CPT code that the surgeon uses when a PA first assisted surgery. There are special rules that Medicare puts in place when a surgery occurs and a first assistance needed in a teaching hospital. For example, Medicare pays graduate medical education money for the training of surgical residents. And when you're in an institution or a hospital that has an approved accredited program in a particular surgical specialty, such as orthopedics, Medicare requires that a resident be used in that first assist responsibility before a physician, a PA, or an NP can be used. You must try to use the resident first and foremost within that first assist duty. Now, there are certain exceptions to that. Number one, this only applies in institutions that have an approved accredited program in a particular surgical specialty, neural, ortho, whatever it might be. If you are a hospital that simply flows residents through, that flows fellows through, but you don't have that approved accredited program in the particular surgical specialty, then Medicare's restrictions about who you use as a first assistant are all off the table and PAs can be used. So that's the key, the approved accredited program in surgery. A couple other exceptions exist as well. If you're working with a surgeon who's got a trauma case, that surgeon can suspend the rules as well and rely on a PA before a surgical resident because of the unique nature of that particular encounter or the patient's condition. Also, if you happen to have a surgeon who works in a hospital that has an approved accredited program, but the surgeon doesn't typically use residents in the provision of care, then again, that's another exception in which you can use a PA or an NP or a physician before a resident. But for the most part, if you're in an approved accredited program, Medicare wants that resident or fellow to be used for the first assist. Also, it's important in my mind, when you're filling out the operative report and you're not using a resident, either because it's a trauma case, or because a resident wasn't available because he or she was tied up in another surgical case, put some note on the medical on the op report to indicate why a resident wasn't used. Because when an auditor comes by three to four months down the road and you have no dictation, no detail about why a resident wasn't used, it's gonna be really hard for folks to remember. So put some notation as to why you didn't use a resident on the op report. 
Very important information for our hospital-based colleagues, especially those in teaching hospitals. Michael, what is the MedPAC or the MedPAC? And if you don't mind just going through that organization's findings when we're talking about the global surgical package. Yeah, so MedPAC stands for the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, and it is really an arm of government that is has a purpose of talking to Congress and informing Congress three or four times a year, looks at different policies across the entire spectrum of Medicare policy, and then makes recommendations to Congress as to how much money should be increased in hospital care, for example, versus nursing home care and a great many other policies. Uh, I will tell you, by the way, that they've made some suggestions in terms of incident two and PA specialty identification and some other issues that are, are uniquely related to the pay profession. But in, in terms of the global surgical package, there have been a number of entities out there, including CMS itself, who have begun to believe that there are fewer post-op visits now than there were five or 10 years ago when the Medicare fee schedule was put together and we were paying for these surgical global fees. And in their opinion, if there are fewer post-op visits than there were before, then shouldn't they then start to reduce the total amount of money that they're paying for the surgical global package? If you're doing less work, then in their opinion, there should be less money going toward it. Whether it's true or not is still up for grabs. They've done a couple of surveys to try to determine if their supposition is true in terms of there being less post-op visits. On one hand, you have people saying that, you know, my patients are sicker than ever. They have more issues with obesity and other issues, which means my job as a surgeon is even harder than it was before, both intraoperatively and postoperatively. But you have other people saying, well, you're using a lot more laparoscopic procedures. And so the issues that are involved in wound care and other things aren't as serious as they were before. Therefore, we probably think there are less visits. I will tell you that some of the initial surveys even though they've been not complete in my mind in terms of the level of participation by surgical teams, have demonstrated that there probably are fewer post-op visits, at least on 10-day global procedures, which are less invasive. On 90-day global periods, I'm not really sure if that's true because the data is still a little bit suspect in terms of participation, but there is some indication that perhaps there aren't as many post-op visits as there were before. And so the Medicare program and MedPAC and others are saying that perhaps it's time now to lower that fee schedule. Another option they're offering is to change the surgical global package to say, let's pay people and surgeons for the pre and intraoperative care, that is the surgery itself and one pre-visit, and then carve out all the post-op care. Let's not put that in the global package anymore. Let's allow those surgeons and those PAs and MPs to build separate E&M visits for any kind of post-op care. So at least you're getting paid for everything you do post-operatively, via the E&M billing process, but we're not going to assume a certain number of post-op visits and pay that in the upfront payment in the global package, which is an interesting idea because if that were to go forth, what it would do is allow more visits to be billed for and captured. And a lot of those visits are being done by PAs, in my opinion. And right now they're covered in the global surgical package and not being billed for separately. If you went to an E&M post-op billing mechanism, then those visits could be billed separately as separate office visits. Now, whether or not surgeons would try to make those incident two visits or not, I'm not sure. But one of the biggest concerns about changing that is the fact that the PA first assist bill or payment is based on a percentage of the global payment. PAs get 13.6% of the total global payment for their first assist duties. 
If you then shrink down the amount you're going to pay in the global package because you're carving out the post-op care, what does that do to the first assist visit? Is it going to now going to be based on a lower amount of money, which in our opinion isn't fair because the work product of the PA and the professionalism needed has not changed one bit, but yet there's a possibility that the first assist payment could go down even though the work hasn't changed. So we're in that dilemma of trying to figure out how that works. And it's unclear whether or not Medicare is going to push this issue, but certainly it's come up two or three different times in terms of their policy considerations. I can see also if they kind of lowball the post-op visits, you know, like how much you'll get reimbursed for that, they could decrease the payments in different ways. Michael, what is the 99024 code? And I think all PAs should be keeping track of that, but can you please explain what that is and why it's important? 99024 is, under definition of CPT, a post-op follow-up visit. Now, these are non-billable services right now because they're already included in the global package and paid for in that methodology. But for those who want to track what happens post-operatively, the 99024 code is an excellent way to do that because this is a non-billable code. If it shows up on somebody's billing record, it's not going to be paid for by Medicare or any other payer, but it is usable for anyone who wants to figure out what's happening after the surgery occurs. And if PAs are handling three out of the four post-op surgical visits and not currently getting any credit, the 99024 is a nice marker code. It's a placeholder. And at the end of the month, for example, if you're trying to adjudicate what the PA did, what their contribution was in terms of productivity, being able to say, well, I generated this amount of money this year for my first assist, my office visits, but I also had 35 codes. And for all intents and purposes, those are the same as EM codes. And we can put a value to that if we wanted to. But instead of saying that there was no more revenue generated for all my post-op rounding work and my post-op visits, we can say that there were 35, 40, or 60 different 99024 codes, which have value. Because if the PA isn't doing those post-op visits, then the surgeon has to. These can't be delegated to those who don't practice medicine. So an RN or an LPN or anyone else in the office cannot bill for these post-op services because they don't or aren't authorized to practice medicine under the Medicare program. So it's a way for a PA to demonstrate their value beyond the strict reimbursement confines. And again, if the PA is providing these services and the doctor isn't, what you're doing is freeing up the physician or surgeon to see other new patients or engage in other procedures that are revenue producing. So it's a win-win on both parts for the practice. But unless you have some way of tracking these different services that aren't clear in the current reimbursement scheme, you'll never know what that productivity of the PA really looks like. And for those of you that are negotiating salaries, one more thing that you can have to show your worth and your benefit to the practice. So I think everyone should keep track of this, the 99024 code. Last topic, and Michael, you ran out of time at the at the meeting, but I it, it was such a good thing that I wanted to include it here. How can PAs show value? We talked about the 99024 code, but how can they show value even if they're working at a 15% discount to their MDs? Yeah, so Sam, one of my concerns is that if you just take a knee-jerk look at a 15% differential, there's a sense of, well, we're losing money to the practice. And, and yes, I'd rather have 100% as opposed to 85% all the time. But the other inference is that, well, because PAs are paid at 85% when they go under their name and provider number, they're costing the practice money and they're not cost effective. In other words, we're losing money. The PA isn't really worth keeping 
if in fact they're going to be paid at 85 percent and that's a huge misnomer and what we try to do is show through the chart that i was able to briefly show at the meeting in terms of what it really looks like in terms of pa productivity in an expense versus contribution comparison so what we do on our chart is that we say we take a PA average salary of 110 or $120,000 and compare that with a physician's salary of two to three times that level. And what we say is it's not just about the revenue that you bring in that's going to determine your contribution margin to a practice. It's a combination of what you bring in in terms of reimbursement, but also what your net cost is to the practice. So we look at the hourly rate of a PA versus that of a physician. And we say, let's say that both these individuals, the doctor and the PA, both provide 20 to 21 visits per day at a 99213 level. Everybody building the same code, same payment. The doctor gets 100% of that visit, PAs get 85% of it. What happens with that 15% differential when we start to incorporate what the cost of employment is? And the physician's hourly rate is a whole lot higher than that of the PA, often $120 per hour versus maybe $50 an hour for the PA. And if we look at the cost of those folks per, per day in the eight hour, eight hour day and compare that to the revenue generated when both are seeing the same number of 99213 visits per day, what we find out at the end of the day is that the PA actually generates a higher margin for that day's work and seeing those 99213 codes than does the physician, primarily because the physician's salary is so much higher than that of the PA. So at the end of the day, the practices have more money to show from the PA billing at 85% than the practice of the, P of the physician billing at 100%. Now, what's clear here is that what we're not trying to suggest is that a PA is going to out-generate or out-bill a physician in terms of revenue during the course of a year. That is not going to happen, and that's not the purpose of our contribution chart. What we're saying is that even at a 15% rate of payment, the differential rate of payment, that PA still brings financial value to the practice. And that's really the point of that. This way people that myth whereby if you have to make a 15% differential, then somehow we don't have any gain from a practice from that situation. So it's really under that context that we try to present the model. Very important cost-benefit information, and we'll have your recording, your AV recording on our website. Uh, I would like to do that for our next months. And for those that are interested, the chart was fascinating. And one of another thing, one of another tool or thing that you can use to negotiate your salaries to show your worth to the practice. So, Michael, thanks for that. Listeners, I've had the pleasure of speaking with Michael Poe, who's the Vice President of Reimbursement and Professional Advocacy for the American Academy of Physician Assistants. Michael, thank you so much for being on these last few episodes and look forward to seeing you again next year. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity, Sam. Thank you for joining the OrthoPAC podcast. We also welcome you to visit our website, paos.org, where members can download virtual conference content and get category one CME. Also, if you're a non-member and you're interested in our CME content, please visit the aapa.org learning central for the PAOS virtual content.